Rudolf Wesley escaped the Nazis and came to England in 1939. He was a Jewish boy who came from Prague here on the Kinder Transport. And the Kinder Transport was a rescue operation that was organized by people over here in the UK to get visas for uh, European Jewish children who were in danger and to bring them here by train. So like all the other children, Rudolf came without his parents. Um, he was brought over here. He was fostered by a family in Hull in the Northeast, and he, and he grew up here and, and got his British citizenship. Now, Rudolf's mum and dad, they stayed behind in Prague and eventually were sent to the concentration camps at Auschwitz and Terezin, where they died. Now, many years later, Rudolf, who is now older and with his own family, joined a committee for a charity that was called the Abbey Field. Now, the Abbey Field was set up to help find nursing homes for the elderly and housing. And so every three months, he was part of a committee, so he'd have to go down to London and have a big meeting. And when he went down to this meeting, every three months or so, he would sit next to this man called Nick. And over the years, they got to know each other a little bit. Rudolf and Nick worked alongside each other, and, and one day, Nick asked um, Rudolf where he was from. The conversation kind of turned to matters of the past. And Rudolf replied, oh, I'm, I'm from Prague in the Czech Republic. And Nick said, oh, that's interesting. I'd been in Prague around the time of the war. And Rudolf was interested, he was like, oh, right, what were you, what were you doing? And uh, Nick said, well, it's kind of a strange story, actually. I was uh, arranging the rescue of some Jewish children out of Europe. Rudolf had been sitting next to Sir Nicholas Winton, who was one of the Kinder Transport's main organizers. This was a man who was responsible for the rescue of 669 Jewish children from the Holocaust and brought them here as refugees. He saved their lives. So without knowing, for several years, Rudolf was working alongside one of the people who had been instrumental in saving his life. The only reason they'd actually sat together at this meeting was because they were put in alphabetical order and both their surnames began with W. Sometimes a person turns out to be so much more than you had previously thought. And as we come to the passage that we've just read in Mark's Gospel, we reach a pivotal moment where we gain a huge revelation about who this Rabbi Jesus from Nazareth, who he really is. Now, all of us have heard of Jesus, of course, and I'm sure we've all got our opinions about who he is. But this morning, as we look at this portion of the Bible, I want to stun you. I want you to gain a vision of Jesus Christ that is huge, that is compelling, that's intriguing. You may think you've got Jesus figured out, but I want to suggest that after reading this, that you may think again and see Jesus as someone who is far more significant than maybe you first realized. And as we look together at who Jesus is, we're going to see that he calls each of us in a way that will transform all our lives. So we've got three points this morning, the kingship of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. So firstly then, the kingship of Jesus. Well, keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at the text. As we've been working through this text of Mark over the, um, the last few months at this church, we've been looking at this biography of Jesus. 
And so far, we've followed Jesus's public ministry. So over eight chapters, we've seen him do all sorts of amazing things. So he, he's healed miraculously. He's taught with authority. He's broken taboos and rebelled against the establishment of his day. He's managed to delight, challenge, and infuriate with equal measure. And as Mark has carefully organized his material, and we kind of follow this whirlwind of a man through all these different scenarios, the big question on everyone's lips in the text is regarding his identity. Who is he? Up to now, despite a number of hints, there has not been a clear understanding from anyone on who exactly Jesus is. But today's passage marks a crucial turning point. The whole gospel shifts in tone from here. And it starts in verse 27 in the text. So look down with me. So Jesus is with his disciples and he gives them a question which at first glance almost seems a little bit needy. Who do people say I am? And the answers that are given show a basic level of confusion. Some say he's John the Baptist, according to the disciples. And John the Baptist was a charismatic preacher and religious icon. He was a man who'd been killed in prison a few years earlier. Others say he was Elijah, who was another famous man from Jewish history, who was said to one day return to his people in the future. Others thought Jesus was a prophet, someone commissioned by God to speak to people on his behalf. So there was no consensus. There's a variety of uh, opinions. And it's the same today, isn't it? If anything, people today are even more unsure about who Jesus is um, compared to in the days when, when he was around. So some think he's a fictitious myth. Others are a good teacher. Others a great hippie with sandals. The political right claim him as a model conservative. The left is a socialist liberal. There are all manner of opinions about Jesus as it is now, so it was then. Well, so far, so standard. But then Jesus alters the question in a much more personal way. He looks at the disciples and he says to them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, the disciples have been the ones closest to Jesus throughout his ministry. He spent more time with them than with anyone else. Now, admittedly, they've been slow on the uptake for the most part. They've got generally confused about what Jesus uh, is trying to say. They've misinterpreted him. They've misunderstood him. So what will they say? in answer to this question. Well, Peter's answer is at the end of verse 29. Speaking on behalf of the rest of the disciples, he says, you are the Christ. And it is in those words that we have a crucial moment, not just for the story, but for us as readers. See, despite regularly not having a clue, the disciples managed to finally get it. Jesus is the Christ. And if you've been reading Mark, from the very beginning, you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief because we already know Jesus is the Christ because Mark has already told us. Right at the beginning of the, of the gospel, chapter one, verse one, it says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. So as readers, we've already known about this for eight chapters and it's taken that long for someone to finally figure it out. But this is big news. Now, in case you were wondering, Christ isn't Jesus's surname. It's not on his passport. It's a title. It's another way of saying Messiah. Now the word Messiah or Christ literally means 
anointed one. And this was a reference to uh, an old ceremony where oil was poured on someone's head. And this represented them being chosen by God for a specific purpose. Now, in one sense, the term anointed one wasn't that specific in and of itself. Um, There were lots of anointed ones in the Old Testament. But gradually, over history, the prophets of Israel came to understand and think of a particular anointed one, a person who was known as the Messiah, a king with a capital K. And as we read the Old Testament, we gradually piece together what the Messiah's job description is. So he's to be a ruler of Israel, but not just Israel, the nations as well, and that's everyone else. So he's going to be a king over the whole earth, but he's not going to be a corrupt king like Israel had often had. He was to be a good king, one who would bring peace to his people, someone who would deliver them from oppression, someone who would rebalance the scales of justice, someone who would judge honestly, someone who would speak up for the downtrodden and the poor. He was someone both chosen by God, but somehow also identified with God himself. A divine king, in other words, whose rule, we were told, would never end. Now, for Peter to say that Jesus is the Christ was to claim something of such magnitude that not even Peter fully understood all the implications of it, and we'll see that later. Because if Jesus was the Christ, then that means he is the divine Son of God. He's the creator. He made this world. He made Peter. And he made us. If Jesus was the Messiah then, it follows that Jesus is the Messiah now. And that this whole earth is his. Every country, every sea, every blade of grass on an undiscovered territory that we've not been to yet, it's all King Jesus's. Abraham Kuyper was a president of the Netherlands a hundred years ago. And he put it like this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Everything is his. And that has implications for us, doesn't it? He's the one who made us. He's given us every faculty and gift and breath of air we've ever had. And we live in his jurisdiction. We're under his roof. So, if Jesus is the Christ, then this is a massive, massive claim. And it's an all-or-nothing claim. I don't know in what capacity you've come across Jesus before. You may have uh, come across his ethics and think of him perhaps as merely a good teacher. You may think Christianity is basically similar to a lot of other religions and that they all basically teach the same things. But if Jesus is the Christ... This title allows for neither of those options. If he is the Christ, then he's far more than a teacher, and he's someone who no other religion would uh, give the same kind of preeminence to. If he's the Christ, then he's supreme over everything else. Therefore, through the pages of this text, Jesus asks us the same question that he asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And you know, if there's even a chance that it's true, that he might be the Christ, 
then surely we should consider it further because those claims are massive. The kingship of Jesus. Secondly then, the cross of Jesus. Okay, so Peter figures out that Jesus is the Christ and you think, okay, this is the moment. It's all going to kick off now. Cue the Rocky-style montage. Jesus and his disciples getting ready, claim the throne, fight the power. Uh, but that's not quite what happens. Instead, there's an abrupt change of gear. Look at verse 30 with me. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That's a bit odd. The king has arrived, but it's got to be a secret. After all this tension in the plot, this grand revelation that Mark has been working towards has got to be hushed up. Now this is because even though Jesus is the king, he's not quite the king they were expecting. And to help us understand this, it's useful to know a bit about Israel at this time in history. So Israel was occupied by the Roman army who were as strong as they were oppressive. And the Jewish people of the day wanted liberation. They wanted to be free. They didn't want to be under the shackles of the Romans. And so a lot of their hopes regarding the Messiah centered around this context and reality. So in their minds, the Messiah was going to be a revolutionary. He's going to be someone who's going to kick out the Romans, rule the world through military strength. They were waiting for world domination. This is what the disciples would have expected of Jesus. You can almost imagine Peter dusting off his army jacket because he's waiting to be promoted to general. Which makes what Jesus says next all the more shocking. Look look with me at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's a, a messianic title from the Old Testament, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So the disciples may have grasped that Jesus is the Messiah, but now Jesus has to teach them about what that really means. And it is completely baffling. Jesus is not going to rise up against the Roman oppressors. Instead, he's going to suffer He's going to be rejected by the religious establishment. The chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. These are the only people in religious Judaism whose opinions mattered. It's kind of unthinkable that they wouldn't back the Messiah themselves. But they're going to reject him. And worse than that, he's going to be killed. Death. It looks like failure, surely. In all of this, Jesus is, of course, speaking of his journey to the cross that would happen in the future, where he would be portrayed and crucified. Now, if you put yourselves in the feet of the disciples at this point, this is kind of bonkers, all right? Imagine imagine being detained at a prisoner of war camp. Imagine being in freezing, starving conditions. You and your fellow prisoners have heard rumors that someone is going to come and liberate the camp, and that's enough to keep you going. It gives you enough hope to stay in your situation and, and endure. Finally, your rescuer comes, you meet him in the camp, you've been around him for a while, you're waiting for liberation to happen, then all of a sudden he says to you, I'm going to hand myself in so I can be publicly hanged. It would be madness, wouldn't it? Madness. So let's back up a second. We've got two extraordinary claims 
about Jesus that we've just seen. And they seem contradictory. On the one hand, we've seen that Jesus is the Christ. If he's the Christ, he's the most important king the world has ever seen. And yet on the other hand, he comes to this world not with a mission of power and majesty, but with a mission of suffering and death and shame. A mission of apparent failure. A king on a cross is completely counterintuitive. Well, having listened to this, the Apostle Peter is having none of it. Death and rejection don't sound particularly kingly, so it says in the text he decides to take Jesus aside and kind of give him a talking to. Funny, given he's just acknowledged Jesus is the king of everything, he decides to kind of rebuke him. Don't know what he's thinking. But he's not, he's not happy, he, can't, he doesn't have a category for what Jesus has just said. You see, Peter has signed up for what we're going to call the glory story. The glory story. He's like a glory hunter in football. You know, glory hunter fans, right? The ones who choose to support the teams that are successful. The ones that win. The ones that gain the league. There are a few clubs in Manchester that may have their own glory supporters, glory hunters. Now, glory hunters want the joy of winning, but they don't want to support teams that fail. Glory hunters don't stick around for relegation. And this is a little like Peter's approach to Jesus. He's expecting the Messiah to go forward in glory, claim his throne, not get relegated. And so he has to have words with Jesus. Surely you've got this wrong. But Jesus has some of his own words for Peter. And it's blistering. Have you seen this? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And in the space of five verses, Peter Peter has gone from hero to zero. He's clocked on about who Jesus is, and then he's just been rebuked by Jesus. You know you've had a bad day at the office when the Son of God calls you Satan. (laughs) Jesus' reaction is fierce. But it shows how important it is, how crucial it is that Jesus faces the cross. You see, for Jesus, facing the cross, taking on suffering, rejection and death, it's his mission. What does he say? The Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer to truly fulfill his role as Messiah, to truly restore the world, bring peace, make things just. It's going to have to take his life. There is glory, but death and shame come first. Now, we don't understand everything about this at this point, and Mark hasn't quite revealed it to us. But isn't it quite striking, thinking about it, how different Jesus is? When you think about historic rulers with so much power, they tend to use it for extravagance, don't they? So, Pharaoh Ramesses II created huge temples in his own honour in Egypt, with huge statues of himself in gold. Alexander the Great created Alexandria, which was the cultural centre and economic centre of the entire world. Even Donald Trump, when entering the White House, swapped the red curtains in the Oval Office for golden ones. And yet Jesus Christ, when he comes to the world... He offers his hands and he says, put nails in these. Hang me to a cross with no dignity, 
so I can restore this world. It's extraordinary. Extraordinary. So we've seen the kingship of Jesus. We've also seen the cross of Jesus. Finally then, the call of Jesus. So if Jesus is the king with a cross, what does he call us to do? What does that mean for us? Well, we don't have to look far because Jesus tells us. After locking horns with Peter, Jesus decides to inform everyone exactly what it means to be his disciple. And we see that to follow him is costly. Verse 34, he calls the crowd to him, as well as the disciples. Everyone has to listen to this. Everyone has to hear it. And he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. It is hard for me to overestimate the impact these words would have had on their hearers. When Jesus used carrying the cross language, you can almost imagine the crowd shuddering as they hear him. Because it refers to crucifixion, as we mentioned earlier. And it's important we realize that crucifixion was understood as the most barbaric way to die in the ancient world or at this point in history. It's the most horrendous, vicious method of execution that the Romans could come up with. And not just because of its prolonged agony, which was substantial. It sometimes took days to die if you were crucified. But also because of the humiliation. Those who were crucified had signs on the top of their their crosses saying who they were and what they had done. They were forced to carry their crosses through the streets in public. Taking their own method of Uh, execution with them and carrying it to the place where they were going to die and then when they were crucified they were stripped naked no dignity in full public view in front of everyone it was designed purposefully for humiliation as well as pain so that anyone who saw it would be completely deterred from uh, rebelling against the Roman rule and yet here Jesus the Messiah the Messiah remember calls anyone who would follow him to carry their cross. He calls his disciples to a death march. For Jesus, the Christian life is not to be defined by the glory story. Success, acceptance, power. That's what Peter imagined. No, following Jesus is costly. It's characterized, he says, by self-denial. A willingness to surrender our own desires and be sacrificial for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others. The Christian life is to be marked by a willingness to suffer shame on behalf of Jesus. Being mocked or ridiculed or even worse. And yes, Jesus' disciples are to show a willingness and are called sometimes even to die for the sake of Jesus. Now this seems so remote to us. In this country, but for a large proportion of Christians throughout history and in the world today, following Jesus can mean martyrdom. Countries like North Korea, Somalia, Libya, it happens. It happens. Our church partners with churches in Turkey, and one of their pastors um, regularly receives death threats. One of the churches in Turkey was bombed within the last few months. And according to Jesus, This is all part of the territory. 
This is not something that's shocking. This is, this is what happens when you're a Christian. Jesus calls his followers to carry the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who uh, resisted Hitler in the Second World War and had ended up dying in a concentration camp himself. And he spoke famously on this passage. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So for those of you who are looking into the Christian faith, this is something you need to be aware of. Full disclosure up front. Now, of course, the Christian life is one of immense joy and privilege. Of course it is. Chat to a Christian here and they'll tell you. It's the most important thing you could ever do. The most wonderful, wonderful thing you could ever do is to put your trust in Jesus. But following Jesus is costly. It means facing suspicion, hostility at times. If you come to Jesus from certain cultural backgrounds, it may cost you your family, or even worse. So bear it in mind. And Christian friends here, is carrying your cross the way in which you view your Christian life? Is it one of sacrifice and denial, self-denial? See, the cross has to be more than a logo we put on our publicity, or something we put around our necks. It's so easy for us to try and fit following Jesus around our pre-existing glory stories. We're happy to give money to Jesus' kingdom once all our comforts are in place. We'll make time for Christian community, but only on the weeks where we haven't got something better to do. We'll talk about the good news of Jesus, but only when we're sure we won't be ridiculed. And so the things that we desire more, the glories that we seek, become apparent in our lives. Friends, the way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice. Following Jesus is costly. And yet, at the same time, it's worth it. It's worth it. Look at what Jesus says afterwards. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what, can get, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus shows us here that there is a futility in living just for this life. Now, we know, don't we, that the world around us is broken. There's so much suffering and injustice and selfishness. There's disconnection from God. And you know what? That happens out there in the world outside, and it happens in our hearts too. It's why we need a Messiah in the first place, to come and fix the mess. Now, according to Jesus... This world, in all its brokenness, is destined to end one day and will be restored to a better one. Jesus will return, as he says in the passage, in his Father's glory with the angels. And his king will fully establish his kingdom, freeing the world of all the pain and death and corruption it sees now. This world is not all there is, Jesus says. There is a world to come. Therefore, to put your hopes in this world rather than in Jesus, is like trying to plant a fruit tree in the desert. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If you put all your chips in on this world, but don't know the king who created it and is going to restore it, you won't gain the true life that you really want. Look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? That's an explosive thing to say. 
Isn't it tragically true that you can gain so much in this world and still be left with nothing? Since Christmas, I've been reading the huge 600-page biography of Steve Jobs. Uh, and I've been struck by the man, how, how brilliant he was, how complex he was, how flawed, but how much he achieved in a lifetime. He revolutionized six industries, personal computers, animated movies. He was the head of Pixar when they made Toy Story. Music, phones, tablets, and, and digital publishing. He started Apple out of his dad's garage, and he built it into literally the biggest company in the world. If anyone in our generation has come close to gaining the whole world, it was Steve Jobs. He's a remarkable man. He achieved so much. And yet, of course, tragically, he's now not with us. How much of his wealth and achievements does he have access to now? None of them. And even if we do reach the giddy heights in this life, it's by no means guaranteed to satisfy. Jim Carrey, looking back over a career of success and achievement and glory as a, as a comedian, as an actor, he had to say this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed so they can see it's not the answer. The glory story doesn't work. So why do we spend so much of our time trying to find it? We spend all our energies and efforts trying to climb the career ladder, get that promotion or the next pay increase. We dream of finding that partner, you know, the one who will make us feel whole and alive. We obsess over getting our children into the best schools so they can have the best education they can get. And these are not bad things. But if we put all our hope in them, We'll just be disappointed. Lasting glory can't be found in this world, Jesus says. So instead, King Jesus calls us to follow him. He's the author of life. He is the one who will restore this world. And his kingdom is one that we want to live in. He's a king unlike any other. And for all his majesty, he doesn't flaunt it, but chooses to take on suffering and death for us. No golden curtains for Jesus. He shows us that the way to glory is through death and then resurrection. The way up is the way down first. And so he calls us to do the same thing. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Now, following Jesus in this life may be costly. To everyone else, it may look like a failure and stupid. But Jesus promises that it leads to a future glory, a perfect kingdom, a pain-free eternity. And to know this king, the one who is so awesome and yet loved us so much, that alone makes it worth it. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary in Ecuador uh, working with the native Alka people along with her husband Jim in the 50s. Now she knew what it meant to carry a cross sacrificially. Her husband, Jim, was murdered on a beach as he was trying to contact the tribe early into their journey. She became a widow. And despite the tragedy, Elizabeth stayed the course in Ecuador. And over time, she got to know the tribe well. She even met her husband's killers and reconciled with them. Afterwards, she wrote about her experiences and she shared diary entries that Jim had written when he was alive. And one entry said the following words. This is striking. Listen to this. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Today we've seen earth-shattering claims about who Jesus is and what he calls us to. He's the Christ. He's the king of everything. And yet a king who for all his majesty would embrace the cross. He shows us that the glory story doesn't work, but that if we trust him, we can follow him through death to resurrection and real glory. Like I said at the beginning, these are huge claims. And perhaps you're skeptical, and I understand that. But again, if there's even a chance that this may be true, then surely it's worth finding out more. Perhaps the call of the king is ringing in your ears this morning. And if so, please don't ignore it. Maybe chat to me afterwards or someone else who's been at the front. Take a gospel. We've got a number of uh, Mark's gospels that has this story in and others. It's short, it's punchy, it's impactful, quick to read. We've got a course coming up that I mentioned. Maybe you'd like to sign up for that. Maybe you'll discover that Jesus is a king worth following. The kingship of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and the call of Jesus. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray, shall we, as we finish.